Welcome to the Jesus on Prophecy audio resource for the Monroe, Michigan site. Here you will find all the messages from the Jesus on Prophecy series. If these messages are a blessing to you, please share them with your friends and family. We pray all of these resources will encourage you to study God's Word as never before. So this evening we're going to be looking at prophecies of Israel and the 144,000. Um, as we've done in previous nights, please allow me a word of prayer before we, we begin. Father, you have been faithful. Each evening, Father, we have sensed your spirit answering um, these prayers for understanding. We have sensed your spirit guiding us, giving us insights. And Father, we none of us want to just come out of here having heard a good informational presentation. We want the gospel to penetrate deeper into our hearts and minds. We want to experience in a deeper way the, the love you have for us and how we can respond to you back with love. So Father, to honor your name, to glory you, I ask that tonight again your spirit would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen, Father. Amen. Thank you so much for your faithfulness, Lord. So we, we've covered quite a bit of territory. We looked at how uh, the book of Revelation is like a Rubik's Cube. Um, you have to see Jesus. When you, when you begin to see Jesus clearly on every side, just like you have four Gospels pre presenting Jesus um, consistently as a character of love, mercy, and compassion, the book of Revelation should do the same thing. And there's a system to that. And we've discovered that through the six keys to unlock the book of Revelation. We looked at how the book is symbolic. For the most part, it has some parts that are literal, but symbolism dominate the book of Revelation. And uh, now you can tell me where do most of these symbols come from? What part of the Bible? Old Testament. It has major use of the Old Testament. It has ordered structures. We saw that with the chiastic structure that right at the center of the book of Revelation, we have this great battle between Christ and Satan, highlighting that God is, is not God's fault that the, the evil came into existence but rather a being in heaven chose. God made his creatures with freedom of choice, out of love, and a being, an archangel named Lucifer, decided to rebel for no reason whatsoever. It is a mystery, according to the Bible. We have Christ-centered prophecies. We saw how the Bible predicts the baptism of the Messiah, the sanctuary imagery it told us when the Messiah would be crucified, doing away with all earthly sacrifices, doing away with all of the earthly priesthood, and then lastly, we have historical applications, which helped us identify the Antichrist. This past weekend, we made use of pretty much all of these six keys, and it's been consistent, and the, mo the, most, the part that I enjoy the most is we've used the scriptures. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a bonus key. Tonight, we're going to learn another key found in the book of Revelation that helps us understand and interpret consistently the book. And it's a principle called hearing and seeing. So now you have seven keys. Uh, we're going to be empowering you with several more before the seminars are over. But tonight we're going to be looking at what it, how the book of Revelation uh, reveals this hearing and seeing. You will see the, this pattern develop all throughout the book. You will see that John receives a revelation by hearing and seeing. What John sees is always different from what he hears. And it's talking about in specific situations. 
you'll hear John saying, I heard something, but then he sees something else. What John sees interprets what he hears. What John hears and sees are two perspectives of the same reality. And the book of Revelation mentions this explicitly. Revelation 22, verse 8, at the very end of the book, it says, Now I, John, saw, and what else? Heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. So the idea that he would hear something and see something is repeated throughout the book in very specific scenarios. Some examples. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, John hears the sound of a trumpet but sees the living Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 13, he speaks of the, as the Lord coming down with the, the voice of a trumpet, uh, the sound of trumpets. Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, this is my favorite one. John hears that um, the only one that is worthy to open the seals is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So John hears a lion, but when he turns around, he doesn't see a lion, he sees what? A lamb. So in, in, the, in the book of Revelation, we know this already, who is consistently being represented by the symbol of the lamb? Jesus Christ. Now, John hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the seals. But when he turns around to see this lion, he doesn't see a lion. He sees what animal? The lamb. Now, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah then? Jesus. Jesus. John hears a lion, but he sees a lamb. Two different symbols. One is heard, one is seen, but they're speaking about the same reality. Is that making sense to you right now? John would hear something symbolic, and then he would turn around and see something else symbolic, but that lion and that lamb, are they speaking about different things or the same person? Same, same person. You got it. We will see this throughout the entire book of Revelation. There's an, here's another example. Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. John hears of a prostitute sitting on many waters, but sees a woman riding a scarlet beast. We will see that in about three Four sessions ahead. We're going to be looking at these symbols. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, and then 21, 1 through 5. John hears of the bride of the Lamb, but sees a city, the New Jerusalem. So he hears bride, but when he turns around, he doesn't see a bride. He sees what? A city. And we're going to be looking at that, I believe, um, next Wednesday. Uh, when we see the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, we're going to be studying that part uh, in more depth. So now this, these were a few examples. Now my favorite one, of course, is the one about Jesus, uh, John hearing the lion but seeing a lamb. It stands out so clearly and beautifully. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Now we're prepared to engage these individuals, the 144,000. Revelation 7, 1 through 4 says, And I heard, and I what? Heard, heard the number of those who were sealed, and John hears that number, and that number is 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So John is, is, is explicit. He heard the number. After these things, I looked. And behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. These two... Um, Parts of this section of the book of Revelation are given in one unit. And within this unit, John hears a number. What was that number? 144,000. 
But when he goes to look at the 144,000, what does he see? He sees a multitude, great multitude, which no one could number, comprised of what kind of people? What ethnic group? All of them. So if we're going to be using this principle from the book of Revelation that is found within the book of Revelation, somehow in the book of Revelation, Revelation is mashing two things up. The 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, that's what John hears. But when he turns around, he doesn't see 144,000 Jews. He sees a number of individuals that cannot be numbered, comprising of how many ethnicities, how many geographical locations, how many languages, every single one. So somehow the book of Revelation is joining together two things that for many Christians poses great mysteries, great questions, a lot of speculation. Will the Jews be saved? Will Israel be instituted again? Will the temple be rebuilt? And all those things. Most of that comes from these kinds of passages. The 144,000, who are these individuals? We're going to be looking at that in detail tonight. John hears a number, 144,000, but sees an innumerable multitude. And just like that, this principle helped us identify who this lion of the tribe of Judah is. Who was that lion? Jesus. Jesus, because... That's what he heard. He heard lion, but when he saw, who did he see? The lamb. So John hears 144,000, but when he turns to look, what does he see? Multitude. So we need to understand how this, how can this be? How can the book of Revelations be speaking about the tribes of Israel, but actually be meaning individuals from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people? 144,000, of course, is a symbolic number is two sets of 12 multiplied by 1,000. And these numbers then come up from thin air. Um, I'm going to go a bit slow so that you can take notes. Okay? The original 12 that we find in the book of Revelation comes from the 12 tribes that are the children of Israel. Okay? And I'm going to ask, as I've been talking with you, I'm so happy that God has brought to us Bible students, individuals that are reading the Bible on their own, are studying, take notes, um, praising God for that. Who knows what Israel's name was before it was changed? Jacob. Jacob. Who was Jacob's daddy? That was his granddaddy. Isaac. And who was Isaac's daddy? Abraham. So it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name turns and God changes it to Israel. And then it's Jacob or Israel that has 12 children after that. And that, those become the 12 patriarchs, Right? And the 12 patriarchs were called Israel as a whole. So um, that's where the first number 12 comes from, from the people whom God made a covenant with in the Old Testament to establish a kingdom. God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, which would have been Isaac, Jacob, who becomes Israel, and then the 12 children. That second 12 comes from Jesus himself. When Jesus comes to earth, he begins to preach about the kingdom of God, to establish a kingdom of God. And he has many followers, but he handpicks how many disciples? Twelve. Twelve disciples. And it's interesting. We'll look at this more, more in depth next Wednesday. In the New Jerusalem, you have where these two twelve come from. Because the gates are named after the tribes, but the foundations are named after the apostles. So you have twelve tribes, twelve apostles. 
one from the Old Testament, symbolizing Israel, and then you have a, a, the new kingdom that Jesus is establishing with 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. So these two 12s don't come from thin air. And when you combine those two, and then you multiply it times 1,000, you get the 144,000. 12 times 12 is 144. Why this combination? Because in the book of Revelation, what is being shown is that what God began in the Old Testament with the children of Israel becomes a reality when Jesus comes. The, the, the covenant that God began with, it, with Abraham, the promises he made to Abraham, all become fulfilled with Jesus, who is now going to establish the spiritual kingdom of God, and he's going to establish it through 12 individuals. What the 12 patriarchs were in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles are in the New. Is that, is, are you guys following so far? Are you with me? And when you multiply 12 times, times 12, you, have, you get 144. That's what you get the 144 for, but what about the 1,000? Um, the fifth point that we see up here is a thousand alludes to the second commandment spoken to Israel at Mount Sinai as God was about to make them into the Israelite nation. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, God says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, showing mercy to the thousand generation, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And Deuteronomy 7, verse 9 is even clearer. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps what? Covenant and mercy for how many generations? A thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So this is contingent upon the covenant. And that covenant was made with Abraham, who then, of course, he carried over to Isaac, to Jacob, who becomes Israel, to the 12 tribes. And God says that he would do that for how many generations? A thousand. I told you that I was a massage therapist. And when I was in California... Uh, we were doing our practicum, and uh, in California, we, it was an interesting community where I was at, Desert Hot Springs. Um, it was kind of touristy in the winter times from people from the East Coast. And there was a, a Hasidic synagogue that would come over every year, um, and so you would see uh, a, quite a, an interesting contrast of people walking around with shorts and flip-flops sweating in the desert hot sun of Desert Hot Springs. It lived up to its name. Um, and then these individuals completely in black, walking around with black hats all over the place. And the synagogue wasn't far from the clinic where I practiced, where I got my training. And um, the rabbi had declared our clinic kosher. So they could come and get treatments with us. And I had the privilege of working on the rabbi from this community, from this synagogue. Uh, rabbi Yezaya Gross was his name from Brooklyn, New York, and we met in California. And um, as I was working with, on him, he showed me his arm, and he had a tattoo in his forearm. You know where he got that tattoo? Yeah. He had been in one of the concentration camps in Europe, and he had survived. Awesome stories. I don't have time to tell you all the things we talked about. Uh, fascinating, fascinating man. And um, we were talking, and he was impressed that I knew my Bible pretty good, especially the Old Testament. Um, because he told me that he had his lineage, he had his genealogy all the way back to Abraham. From himself, yes. all the way back to Abraham. For Jewish people, genealogies are huge. And uh, so I looked at him and I said, uh, Shem, Ham, or Japheth? <laughs> I was testing him. If they would have said Ham, I would have been like, eh, that's not kosher. <laughs> he liked that. And he's like, ooh. 
a Christian that knows his Old Testament. So then he said to me, do you know how many generations are from me to Adam? You want to take a guess? 354. Sounds disappointing, doesn't it? But it means something. When God made his promise, I believe Jesus is coming soon. And brother Josiah Grosh, no matter how many children he has, on earth, before Jesus comes, we will never get to 1,000 generations. Which means that Jesus is making a promise that fulfills what the book of Romans says, that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The promises of God's grace would surpass the amount of humans that would inhabit planet earth. The sacrifice of Christ would cover every single human being. And this promise to make, have mercy for a thousand generations, what God is saying is, my mercy will not run out. No matter how many people that are on planet earth, my mercy will be abundant for every single human being. Praise God, huh? Isn't that amazing? So this is promises that were made to the children of Israel. And here we have the 1,000, right here. 1,000, 1,000. So God is making a promise back then to the 12 tribes of Israel. Those promises get fulfilled through Christ with the 12 apostles. And it's supposed to be made to 1,000 generations. So 144,000 plus the the promise of the 1,000, that is all the symbol behind the 144,000. It speaks about God's promise, and he speaks about his abundant grace and abundant mercies for the human race. Amen? Amen. It's more than a number, my friends. It's more than a number. It stands of God in, in symbol of representing, representing God's character. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, I'm going to say some things, and I, I'm not going to actually say them, just highlight some things that will hopefully um, calibrate or correct some things that we may have heard from well-intentioned individuals um, in regards to the identity of Israel in the book of Revelation. Are these the, the real, literal tribes of the book of, of Jews, um, or is it symbolic? Is it spiritual, or is it sim- symbolic of something else, someone else? Um, for individuals that I've, and I've talked with several from various persuasions, from Judaism to Catholicism, Protestantism, and some that are just straight up atheists. Um, there's, of course, a, a variety of interpretations, but the vast majority seem to feel that this is literal Israel. Mm-hmm. There's a challenge with that. There's a problem with that. In the book of Exodus, we have the tribe of Israel, the 12 tribes, and this is in your handout. And I do need to apologize somehow when he got converted um, some of the names got switched around. So the list that is here on the screen is the correct one. And I believe it's uh, the, the left-hand side that it has uh, two, a Gad, the tribe of Gad twice. And if it, your handout does, I apologize. I can probably ask the volunteers to reprint that page and we can have the corrected one. Uh, or you can correct it yourself if you want to. That, that way you don't have to wait. And I'll give you some time. But in Exodus, it lists in sequence from oldest to youngest the tribe of Israel. And so you have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and there's a reason why I highlighted him, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Joseph. Joseph, of course, being the youngest, the one who has the dreams that all the brothers are worshiping him or bowing down to him, and he ends up in jail. So that's the correct sequence from the oldest, who was Reuben, all the way down to the youngest. In the book of Revelation, 
when it identifies the 12 tribes and how the representatives of each tribe is included, many people, are, and I can understand why they would think it's literal, because it lists the names, but the problem is that in the book of Revelation, it doesn't list them in that same sequence. And it actually switches one of the names out. It leaves out Dan and brings in Manasseh. And it begins with the tribe of Judah instead of Reuben. Now, Reuben, um, in standard patriarchal culture and mindset, the oldest was the one that got the inheritance. The inheritance of the blessings and the inheritance of the land and possessions. He got the biggest part, and then the remaining got divided with the younger brothers. And Reuben was, of course, Jacob's oldest. Why is not Reuben mentioned first in the list of the book of Revelation? And what is the tribe that is mentioned as being the firstborn, but it is not, but is mentioned as if it was the firstborn in the book of Revelation? Which tribe? Judah. I'm going to let you think about that for a second. Why would the book of Revelation put Judah first and not Reuben? A little wheel of jeopardy, right? Yeah. Or not just jeopardy. That one is just jeopardy. Who came from the tribe of Judah? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and Judah became the royal line. David came from the tribe of Judah as well. So you have Jesus being preeminent in the book of Revelation. And this tribe is not trying to replicate the Old Testament literal tribe because it leaves one of the, the tribes out then and is replaced by Manasseh, who was uh, Joseph's youngest son, not the oldest. Highlighting two principles. God's promises were made from his choice and it was done by grace, not merit. And they were all because of the, the lion of the tribe of Judah named Jesus Christ himself. In the book of uh, Hebrews, Paul highlights that, yes, Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. Uh, he was from the tribe of Judah. And he goes to great lengths to reveal how that makes Jesus even bigger and higher than any of the tribes, period. So Judah takes first place in the, in the, in the, in the list of the 12 tribes of the book of Revelation, letting us know this, my friends, that the list, in the, book, the list of the tribes of the book of Revelation are symbolic. Because if it was literal, it would have to be a carbon copy of the Old Testament, but it's not. It violates the patriarchal rule of putting the, the firstborn uh, first, and it leaves one of the sons out and replaces it with another one, that when Jacob goes to bless Joseph's children, Joseph puts uh, the oldest on his right knee, on his left knee, and the youngest on his right knee, so that when um, Ephraim, so when Judah would bless them, the right hand of, of Jacob would fall upon the, hand, the head of Ephraim. But it doesn't. J Jacob switches it. And Joseph becomes upset. And he says, no, 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 father. You're blessing the younger one. And jo Jacob says, I know. I've been there. My brother Esau was the oldest. But God chose me. Not because I'm good but because he is good. And I want the blessing of the good God upon the youngest. Because it's not by human merit that we get his promises, but, but because the good God is a God of grace. 
So this all, and there's more, but this is the highlight of the book of Revelation and the 12 tribes. The book of Revelation does not teach that these are the literal tribes of Israel, but the symbolic ones, rich, saturated with the gospel, and of course, putting Jesus at the forefront of the list. Second Chronicles. Let's begin to ask this question, right? Who is Israel? We, we already made this case, but is there other parts of Scripture that highlights that what the book of Revelation is teaching is what it is? Is, is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? Who is Israel? Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people? And what is the next name? Israel. And gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. Now, I have many translations in my house in different languages, Spanish as well. The King James is the only consistent one that translates uh, that word the way that it is from the Hebrew. And I know that the New King James, NIV, all the translations are good, and they put descendants there for us to understand what it means. But sometimes we miss out on key links in the Bible because some translations do this. So the more translations you have, the better. Okay, and I just found out that Ollie's has some really good prices on Bibles, so you can go there. Um, when it says descendants right here, I put a little asterisk because the actual literal Hebrew word is seed. So it says, are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the, the literal Hebrew would say, the seed of Abraham, your friend forever. Paul understood this. Paul, who became the champion of preaching the gospel, he understood this, these, all of these passages, and this in particular because he mentions that the promise that God made to Israel, to the seed, the descendants of Abraham, were made by God. And so in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 20 to 9, Paul alludes to that passage when he says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's what? Seed. And heirs according to what? The promise. The promise. That, that expression, if you are the seed, comes straight from this passage and give it to the seed of Abraham, your descendants. Of course, seed is, in our colloquial language, we would say it descendants. But in Hebrew, it was seed. So let us pause here for a second. Who is Israel? And if you are Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are Christ. And if you are, then you are Abraham's what? Seed and heirs according to the promise. Whose promise? What promise? God's promises. What were those promises? What promise did God make to the Abraham, to Abraham's seeds, to his descendants? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. In you, in your seed, how many nations? All nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In your seed, all the nations of the earth. Was God's plan to bless only the Jews? Was God's plan was to bless the entire world? All nations basically means all nations, right? Not some or most, all nations. How is God going to bless all nations? through a descendant of Abraham. Who would be that ultimate descendant from Abraham's lineage? Jesus. Jesus. This is where, you know, those of us that have ever decided to read through the Bible, um, um, it, happens, it has happened to me. 
<laughs> I've learned to just plow through the genealogies, right? right? You get a Genesis chapter 4. Or you start with Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, you have the, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And you're like, I'm going to save this for tonight in case I have a hard time falling asleep. <laughs> for Jewish people, that's huge. And Matthew does an amazing thing. He links Jesus as being a direct descendant of Abraham. He stops halfway through with David, but in the Gospel of Matthew, you see how Jesus was the seed of who? Abraham. And it was through Jesus that God has blessed how many people? All the nations. And Paul says, if you've accepted Jesus, then that's your lineage too. Does that make sense? If you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you, spiritually speaking, are also a descendant of who? Abraham. You got it. You got it. Genesis 26, verse 4. And I will make your descendants multiply as how much? The stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations. So this idea that the Israel is literal, if you want to go there, then if you're going to make Israel literal, you need to say that every person that accepts Christ is a descendant of Abraham. Anyone here accept Christ this evening? Then you are whose descendant? Abraham's. You are in the book of Revelation. You are those people the book of Revelation is referring to. In a few nights, we'll understand why, where all of this confusion comes from. Actually, on Sunday, when we learn about the rapture, you're going to learn why there's so much confusion in regards to the, the land of Israel. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It has to do with, with this, this, this um, substance spoken about often in the book of Revelation called the wine of Babylon. Have you guys ever read through that in the book of Revelation? This wine of Babylon that is given to everybody to drink. It makes people spiritually drunk. Now, I'm not going to ask if anyone's been drunk here before, but I have seen individuals drunk, literally. And they, they can't walk a straight line, right? That's one of the tests that cops will do is to see if you're, if you're and besides the breathalyzer, of course, or touch your nose, all those things. People that are inebriated are not able to walk a straight line. And the reason we have such crooked and such diverse interpretations of Israel is because we have not been discerning as to what is the wine of Babylon. And so you have to be careful as to, I mean, I, I tell my friends, you know, it's good that you're no longer, you know, watching certain things or, or, or the occult and witchcraft and things like that. Great. But not every sermon that you hear on television comes from the scriptures or hasn't been tainted by this wine. And for many Christians, they just absorb it all, thinking it's Kool-Aid, right? Or whatever, orange juice. Um, but not everything. Some stuff, you know, some of my friends would drink orange juice, but it wasn't just orange juice. They had poured some other stuff in it, too. I didn't know that's what you combine it with, but <laughs> some of you know. Um, don't give recipes. Um, what we have is what the book of Revelation is teaching and my appeal to you tonight is stick with the Bible. Amen? So don't start saying, but I heard pastor so-and-so, but I saw, but I heard. No, 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 my friends. So far, 
using the Bible alone, we have made a beautiful, beautiful discovery. If you are, if you have accepted Christ, who are you a descendant of? Abraham. Abraham. And that's who the book of Revelation is referring to. When to continue, we have more. Genesis 28, 14. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, God used things that even to our day still speak to us. Uh, first, he uses the, the symbol of stars. You know, back when God made this promise to Abraham, um, those of us that live, you know, in large cities like Detroit, it's kind of hard for us to appreciate, but how many of you guys have been to the Upper Peninsula? Petoskey and... Have you ever gone out at night when you're up there? What do you see that's different that you don't get to see out here? Stars. Yeah, man. You get to see some beautiful stuff out there, right? When I used to live in South Dakota, Rapid City, South Dakota, I lived in actually a little town called Hermosa, south of, um, east of uh, Rapid City. And I grew up in the inner city where my stars were the electrical light posts, you know, outside my window. And sometimes I didn't see the aurora borealis. I would see blues and reds, but that's the cop that was, you know, arresting my neighbor. That was the closest thing I would get to see to colors in the sky. It felt safe. I was like, the cops are around. I can sleep tonight. There won't be anybody getting shot. But when I moved to South Dakota, I got to tell you, the first night, I'm not kidding. I must have stayed out there for an hour. I could see the Milky Way. I could see all the dippers out there, the bears and all. I was like, oh, 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 oh. it was beautiful. Now, that's what Abraham saw. Have you ever tried counting them? No. <laughs> now, listen, this speaks even more powerfully for us that have telescopes today. Because now, if you go to any part of the sky and you hold up a fist, there are billions of stars in that little space of the sky where your fist is at. Billions. Billions. What we used to think was one star, now with those telescopes, now we know there are trillions of stars in there. Trillions of stars in that one little white dot. And God was like, look at the stars. Start counting. That's how many descendants you're going to have, Abraham. Then God says, count the dust. Have you guys ever been to uh, Lake Michigan or uh, Superior and the beach, right? Ever spent time counting grains there? I've been to Puerto Rico a couple of times. It's a tiny little island, but I'm, I'm not going to try to count this, this sand. Imagine trying to count all the sand in the entire planet. And God is, so God is trying to stretch Abraham's brain and saying, humanly speaking, biologically speaking, you couldn't multiply this much. But that's because it won't come directly from you physically. These descendants will become yours spiritually. I'm going to send the Messiah. And everyone that places their faith in that Messiah will become your descendant. Are you following with me, my friends? That's the beauty of the gospel. It has always been preached. And it was always salvation through Jesus Christ. It has always been like that. Galatians 3, 16 and 29. And if you are Christ. Then you are whose descendant? Whose seed? Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. By faith in Christ, I am Abraham's descendant. You are a Jew. 
Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29 says that clearly. For he is not a Jew who is one what? Outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is what? Outward. In the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one where? Inwardly. And circumcision is of what body part? The heart in the spirit. Not in the letter. Whose praise is not from man but from whom? God. Who is the only one that can perform this kind of circumcision? God. And who does God do it through? The Spirit. Now, this is another way that the Bible describes the experience of the New Covenant that we studied last Saturday night and last Sunday. When we learned that the covenant of God was that through His Spirit, He would write in our hearts and in our minds what things? God's laws. That's the same thing that Paul is saying here, but now he's using the illustration of circumcision. God takes off from us what really sin is, which is self-confidence. God wants us to teach how much we depend on Him to be transformed and converted. You and I have no power. We possess no abilities to change ourselves. To do this, God picked a couple. There was a promise he had made to the human race. I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to become, the word will become flesh. There will be a baby born. Emmanuel. All of those prophecies were given. So God says, how am I going to initiate this process of descendants, babies, down to Jesus? I know. I'm going to pick a couple that can't have babies. Listen carefully. He picks a couple that the wife is sterile. And then he tells them, you're going to have a baby. And they're like, wow, praise God. And then decades go by. There's a little Ishmael episode there that messes the whole thing up, but he keeps going, right? And when, listen carefully, when Abraham can no longer have babies, the book of Romans chapter 4 says that when Abraham's body was as good as dead, and Abraham, Sarah's body, which could never have babies to begin with, but this is post, post, post menopause, right? When they had reached that place, that's when they have the baby. When it was humanly impossible to give birth, they give birth because it was God's power that fulfilled that promise. Amen? Amen. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the gospel? My friends, God is not telling you, try harder. What God is saying is, trust my promises. That's where the power is at. I can keep my promises, and I made a promise to save you. Through my spirit, I can cut away that trust. You see, one of the things that God had, it's not that God wanted to torture Abraham and Sarah by making them wait this long. God had a hard time teaching these two humans to trust him and not themselves. The reason we have the Ishmael episode is because Sarah and Abraham tried to help God in fulfilling that promise. And all they did is make a big mess out of it that we are still suffering the consequences to this day. Ishmael and Isaac are still battling out there in that part of the world. Are they not? They're battling here too. Yes, they are. So, when it comes to your conversion, my friends, you need to continue, continually evaluate what are you looking to. Whenever you take your eyes off of Jesus, you will fail as a Christian. I told you my journey. 
And the time after I got baptized, when I believed in Jesus, I still have much to learn. Just because you got baptized doesn't mean that God downloads the whole thing into your brain that moment. That's not the end. That's not when you get your diploma. That's when you get enrolled in the school of Christ. Amen? Amen. That's when you're in kindergarten, right? God gives you crayons, right? Start coloring about Jesus, right? ABCs. So I was trying to hurry up. And I remember one time driving in Pennsylvania, and I was feeling very holy. Did someone cut me off? And when they cut me off, I didn't realize that through all the music that I had listened to and all the movies that I had listened to, you don't realize how much profanity just, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, you know? And I had a lot of abundance in my, of that garbage. And blah, 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 it came out. And then I started panicking, thinking, now God's going to make me crash. Exactly. But that's what I thought. God's going to make me crash. And then after I realized, oh, I'm not crashing, he must have not noticed. I got home that night, and, I, and the Holy Spirit was like, why would I kill you? Who am I to you? You still don't know me. You've gotten glimpses of me. You need to get that Bible out and stop putting your chemistry books and your biology books. I know you're in nursing school. I know you have a lot of demands on your time, but that career will come and pass, but I stand forever. And your eternal destiny will always supersede any other pursuit. You need to know me more. Because John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My friends, there's only one thing and one thing only that really matters in your life, no matter what age you are. And that is to know Jesus. To know who God's character really is. <clears throat> that night I realized... The God in heaven, he doesn't send lightning when you say profanities. He doesn't. What he sends you is blessings. Romans chapter 2 says that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. He's recognizing God should be spanking me, but he's giving me blessings. What kind of a God is this? He's not a mamby-pamby God. He lets you know you've done wrong, but he tells you you've done wrong because you took your eyes off of me. You're trying to be good in your own strength, and you will always fail. It takes time. Listen, my friends, you still, you are still learning to walk by faith, not by sight. And some days are better than others, right? Some days we put on our, our wrong prescription glasses, right? Especially if you're married with someone that has other kind of glasses and you put theirs by mistake, right? You start bumping yourself all over the place. Um, thankfully, my wife doesn't wear glasses. But unfortunately, my daughters get a hold of mine. It's one time... Uh, I didn't realize that a lens had puffed off. And I'm trying to drive. And I can tell if the, the stop sign is right in front of me or still a block away from me. That's why every morning, you need to make sure that your eyes are on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Don't walk out of your house without having to spend time with the Lord, opening His Word. The Holy Spirit will put the right lenses as to who God is in your life. Amen? Amen? The word of God is crucial. Genesis 22, 17 through 18 says, Blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants, and as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How high can you count? 
when Gianna, my oldest daughter now, um, when she was around, well, my, my youngest one is at that point right now. My youngest one is in this stage where she tells you that she is this old, but soon she'll be 16. <laughs> I don't know why she wants to be 16. I don't know why, why she picked that age, but I'm just glad she didn't say 21. Um, she's al she'll always be like this to me, though. Always. This is the most precious, precious age. I love my, my three-year-old little girl. She thinks that this is the biggest number because that's what she understands. She doesn't understand 10 yet, because when we count, she's, she counts the penguins five, six times. She's still trying to process that. But she counts three. If you put three oranges, she'll get to three. And one day, like my oldest daughter, I remember when she thought that she had learned the biggest number ever, 10, because she had 10 fingers. Therefore, there can be no more bigger than 10, because, hey, I only got 10 fingers. And therefore, I'm the standard of numerical values. But then we told her, no, there's hundreds. What? That's a lot of fingers. It's more than my toes. That's right. There's hundreds. So then she learned to count to 100. You're 99, 100. Yay, I know all the numbers. No, actually, there's thousands now. <laughs> what? Let's go back to the alphabet. There's only 28 of those, right? There's no more letters. 26. 26. Sorry, I'm thinking Spanish. Enye. <laughs> Sorry. Bilingual pastor. I forgot to translate the letters. Um, there's only 26. So... As far as you and I are concerned, we will not be able to count in heaven how many people will be there saved. Because it will not just be Jews. There will be people from New Zealand, from Poland, from Germany, from Mexico, from Argentina, from Haiti, from Venezuela. There will be people from every part of the planet. So many that the book of Revelation says they could not be numbered. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. You know, even if this was literal, this would be one of the cruelest statements the scriptures could say about the Jewish people. There's millions of them. And God's like, nope, I'm only, I'm only going to take 144,000 of you. That's a tiny, tiny little fraction. You and I could count 144,000 stars eventually. We could get there. It may take some time. You and I could count 144,000 grains of the sand. But God doesn't save like that. God doesn't save in limited amounts. Because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. When God saves, he saves in abundance. And this group of individuals are innumerable. After these things... I looked and behold, a great multitude, which what? No one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, what, my friends? Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 144,000 and innumerable crowd are the same people. They're just being looked at from different angles. There's different insights when you look at each one of them, and together they bring a beautiful, full picture of the grace of God. Revelation chapter 7 focuses on how one is saved, and that salvation comes only through God. Revelation 14 reveals the character of the redeemed, because they're mentioned in two parts. The 144,000 are mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, and then they're mentioned again in Revelation chapter 14. In chapter 7, what it, the, the emphasis is, is how they are saved. 
In Revelation 14, it describes how God's salvation has changed them, what the grace of God has done for them. So let us look for a second, something that is the ABCs of the gospel, how one is saved. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have done what with Christ? Put on Christ. In the book of Revelation, it says that they have, been, they have put on white robes. Those white robes, I mean, they, they, we may get those little white robes in, in heaven, doesn't matter. But in the book of Revelation, even that clothing is symbolic. Because later on, it's told that these individuals have come out of the great tribulation. And the reason their robes are white is because they have washed it. And it's, they haven't washed it in any earthly detergent. Do you know what's made those garments so white? Blood. Now, my wife gets mad at me when I shave right before I get dressed with these kind of shirts. Because inadvertently, as soon as she washes my shirts, I will cut myself right here, and then you'll get these little red dots right here. And of course, uh, oxygen peroxide will get those right out, but um, blood stains, doesn't clean. Not the blood of Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, when he's speaking about clothing, putting on these clothes, these robes that are white, he's referring to putting on the robe of Christ's righteousness. He's putting on, by faith, the life of Jesus. You receive, by faith, the realization that when God sees you, he doesn't see the divorce. When God sees you, he doesn't see the jail time. When God sees you, he doesn't see the fornication or the adultery or all that, that cruddy mess, the sewage of our past. When you put on Christ, God the Father sees purity, holiness, and faithfulness. And he treats you as if you had always been his son or his daughter. Isn't that amazing, my friends? The book of Revelation is so full of hope and, and, and assurance. Mark 16, 16. How is it that I put on Christ? Um, it's a very simple act that we talked about in a previous evening. Mark 16, 16 says, He who believes and experiences what? Yes. Baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And this verse, as beautiful as it is, has been misused and abused by pastors and evangelists, unfortunately. Myself included, as a young man, pastors would read this verse to me and say, Ayer... If you believe and you're baptized, you will be saved. But if you don't get baptized, you will be condemned. Is that what that verse says? No. Read that verse carefully. He who believes and is baptized will experience what? Salvation. Salvation. But he who does not what? So let me ask you a question. What if you don't believe, but you still get baptized? What is the outcome then? Damnation. You're still condemned. What is the key factor in this equation? Belief. Belief in what? God's promises that he has made and fulfilled through who? Jesus Christ. Because if you are Christ, then you are whose descendants? Abraham. And Abraham was not a squeaky clean guy. He struggled trusting God. You struggle trusting God sometimes? That's okay. Because Abraham <laughs> did, and God considered him his child. It's a growing process. But baptism is an important part of it. So I'm not trying to downplay baptism. This is why I told you when I was 11 and I was baptized, I did not believe. That's why I had to get rebaptized. Because I told you, all that happened when I was 11, I went with, for a 20-second swim with the pastor in front of the church. That's all I did. 
There was nothing that came from my convictions that I believe in Jesus, I understand the gospel, and I give my life to him. That didn't happen until I was in my 20s. So believing is the key part. That's what by faith. Revelation 7, 9 through 14, and I said to him, Sir, you know, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white. Where did we say they made them white in? The blood of the Lamb. Um, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. I'm not going to spend too much time with this part. But if you look at the Old Testament, names are big. That's why Jacob's name was changed. His orig original name meant deceiver, conniver. But God changed it to overcomer, victor. Abraham, originally, Abraham was originally called Abram, which meant um, honorable father, but he changed it to Abraham, which is father of many. But he changed Abraham's name to father of many when Abraham had no kids. So when he would introduce himself to strangers, I am father of many. Ooh, let me see your kids. Mm. I got camels, lots of them, but I ain't got kids. So why is your name Abraham? God changed it. Why? Because he made me a promise. And I still believe. You got to believe, my friends. Sometimes when you look at yourself, you'll be like, I am not very promising. But don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus. He is the promise keeper. And he'll fulfill his promises to change your heart. Revelation 14, 1 through 5. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the... 144,000 who were redeemed. I do want to spend a little bit of time here in regards to the 144,000 and this new song. I'm just going to tell you what this new song is. If you look at the Gospels, you have Zechariah and Mary singing at the Gospels. Um, one's when John the Baptist is born, and another one when Jesus is born. And that song consisted of Mary's journey. And in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, uh, do you know what the largest book of the Old Testament is? Psalms. And what's in the book of Psalms? Songs. You know who wrote the, the vast majority of those Psalms? David. David. And you know what those songs consist of? His life experiences. Some of those songs are about the Lord is my rock, he is my fortress, who shall, be, who shall move me, you know, 10,000 shall flee before me. Other psalms are, Lord, my pillow is drenched with tears, I cry out to you and you don't hear me, where are you? If you put the, the cumulative theme, you see David's life revealed in a song. In the book of Revelation, the reason no one else can sing the song that these people sing, and this 144,000, of course, is symbolic, and they are symbolic of who? You. You. Anyone here from planet Earth? Right? Yeah. You know... This is the amazing thing. This is how I envision this part. They'll say, you, my brother. You, my sister. We've been waiting for this. All the angels are going to shh. We're going to hear her sing her song. And you will sing your life about the good shepherd. How you were a lost sheep. And you will tell about the kind of home you grew up. And the experiences, some sweet, some bitter, 
we will sing about the dark chapters of our life and how Jesus, the light of the world, came and found us and enlightened us and cleansed us and washed us. We will hear Mary Magdalene's song in full. We know little glimpses from the scriptures, but she will get up and she will sing. And every single human being will have an opportunity in heaven to sing the song of their lives before the entire universe. And after each of those songs, we will cast our crowns before Jesus and we will say, what a Savior, what a Savior, amazing grace, amazing grace. And we will not tire of both hearing other people's songs and singing my song to others as well. Um, some of these video recordings are, are sometimes uh, live stream. And one time I, I was preaching my heart out and after the song, there was a, uh, a song that we sang together. And my wife was watching at home through YouTube, YouTube Live. I don't know if you guys have ever done that. What happens is on YouTube Live, you don't hear the congregation singing. You hear the guy behind the mic singing. And then my wife said, honey, you're a preacher. Stick to preaching. And she loves me. She meant well. But she's like, other people were listening. I enjoy hearing your little cracklings. But other people may not have enjoyed it. Um, but in heaven, every voice at one point will crack. They'll choke. The moment they bring Jesus into their life and how merciful he was. And by, I, I cannot envision anyone finishing their song with dry eyes. Can you see that, my friends? Can you envision that in your minds? Revelation 14, 1 through 5. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. How many of you guys want to follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes? These that follow Jesus were the redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. All nations, all tongues, all peoples. You know, there's many applications to this passage. We already looked at how God will save and the 144,000 if, if I'm hoping you caught that tonight. If people ask you, in the book of Revelation, the 144,000, who are those people? What are you going to say now? All nations, tribes, tongues, and people. They are, but it says the children of Israel. Ah, that's right. If you are of Christ, then you are Abraham's. Meaning that if you accepted Jesus, you are a descendant of who? Abraham. That's all the book of Revelation is trying to highlight. It's not causing us or telling us, look at the Middle East, see what's happening over there. It's saying, look at your heart. Is Jesus there? Here's something that I think becomes one of the most tangible realities that should be an experience of the gospel. And I think that if there was a time in history where this emphasis from the book of Revelation needs to be heard. I was still unconverted and I was still a teenager. My youth leader would try to do different things to get our attention. And... One day, he brought this gentleman right here with a tie named Mark Longacre, but he didn't come dressed like that. Mark Longacre came with some of the hardcore, most hardcore Harley-Davidson biker gear that I had ever seen in my life. And I had seen bikers. And uh, the leather pants, the big boots, um, with all the other studded gear all over it. And uh, that's his eyebrows. He's smiling, right? But he smiles like this, right? So he was not smiling when he walked into the room, so he looks angry all the time. What did our youth leader bring, a criminal? Well, yeah, 
He was. He had done some jail time. Um, Mark told us his story, and I've never forgotten it. He sat in front of us, of our group of teens, and he said, um, I used to be the bodyguard for a green dragon here in Pennsylvania. And um, I don't know if you know what that means, but you can go to the Henry Ford Museum and you'll see what they wear. It has a pointy white hood and a white gown, and it's not anything remotely close to what the Book of Revelation is speaking of. You guys know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. He was the bodyguard of one of the leaders in the structure, the hierarchy of the Pennsylvania Ku Klux Klan membership. And which means that if he was the bodyguard, that means we know how he felt about people like me, about people of other shades, of other nationalities, Jewish people included. He hated certain individuals with a violent hatred. And he had grown up in the church. He had grown up to Christian parents. But this is what happens when we take our eyes off of Christ. And Mark's telling us the story about bars and broken glass bottles on his head and busting people's noses. And, of course, that part we enjoyed listening to at that point. I was unconverted. It was like, oh, this is like a movie in church. And he's telling us all these things. And then all of a sudden, he, he realizes that um, there's something deep down in his heart that he's angry at. And it's not other people. It's not African-Americans. It's not Hispanics. It's not Indian people. It's not this. It's not that. The Holy Spirit finally takes away all of these false beliefs that he has been indoctrinated into. You hate those people. No, no, no. What he describes is that he hates himself. He hates himself and he's bent on self-destruction. And the Holy Spirit is like, this is the real person you hate. And your works are are testimony of that. You're promiscuous in an age of AIDS. You are gambling with your life every time you get into a fight with people with knives and guns. It gives you a rush at the moment, but you wish somebody would just kill you, don't you? Yep. I hate my life. I hate what my parents done to me. I just hate it. And Through that journey, Mark ended up yielding his life to Christ and experiencing what was unthinkable at that time. Now he was the good husband that didn't get drunk, came home, and he thought, hey, happily ever after. Jesus came into my life, happily ever after. And one day he comes home from work, and his house is literally empty of everything, including his wife and kids. While he had gone to work, his wife packed everything, had planned it all out, U-Haul, had people come help pull it up, and drove away. Marriage was over, kids were gone, and Mark was in his house by himself, weeping before Jesus, thinking, Lord, this, this hurts more than any brawl I've ever gotten in. This hurts more than anything. And it took years, years, not to rebuild himself financially or get furniture. He could have cared less about that stuff. It took years for him to get rebuilt inside. That divorce devastated him. It just... Knocked the wind out of him. But he clung to Christ. He clung to Christ. And that's not the wife that left him. That's his second wife. Now that's Jennifer. We met Jennifer because her and her husband came to our church in a meeting similar to this. Lee was a firefighter in that community and very much loved the community, very much loved 
by the people that knew him and his employer in the fire station where he worked. And Lee was an African-American. And that was, he was married to Jennifer. And they became converted. They both got baptized. Beautiful, sweetheart couple. Lee had a smile that just melted you. He had a heart, just precious, precious, precious Christian. And Lee discovered about a couple of years, less than five years after he came to our church, that he um, was fighting cancer. He didn't know it. The church prayed. We were confident God would heal him. He had two precious little girls at that time, Aubrey and Ariana. And we were confident. And, and Lee died while I was in California taking massage classes. I got the phone call that Lee had passed away. Jennifer was devastated. Couldn't believe God had not answered her prayer. Why would God take away her husband at such a young age? Little girls left orphans and her, her being left a widow. Tremendous, tremendous darkness, tremendous darkness, which caused her to cling to Christ more than ever before. And their paths crossed years later. And they ended up getting married. Someone that lost her husband to cancer and didn't have reasons why, couldn't understand how this could have happened. But Jesus healed hearts, my friends, and there's nothing he cannot heal. When Jesus came to earth, he tried to show us how abundant was his power by not just healing diseases, but he raised the dead. And if he can raise the dead, he can raise you from wherever you are right now. Amen? Amen. He's got that kind of a power. And he raised Jennifer from emotional death, emotional darkness, emotional despair. And when they met each other, they had healed. And to me, the, beautiful, the, the amazing thing is, is that Mark's background was of an extremely racial individual marrying a woman with children that are mixed, beautiful young ladies from an African-American dad. But you see, the gospel, when you become an heir of Abraham's seed, you begin to love all nations. Amen? Amen. Racism, prejudice, and all that foolishness gets left behind. Amen? Amen. Because I got to tell you that there will be no racism in heaven. There won't be any racism, which means there won't be any racists. So you need to guard your heart. Because that was not something that the Christian church was not always good at. And this is something that is way more complex than we think. It's more than just black and white, my friends. A church planted a Hispanic church in Columbus, Ohio. And the first weekend I stayed for the lunch, fellowship lunch, the Mexicans sat with the Mexicans, the Dominicans with the Dominicans, the Puerto Ricans with the Puerto Ricans, the Salvadorians with the Salvadorians, and I was the only Argentinian. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was like, can anyone have pity on me and allow me into their club, please? <clears throat> so don't get into clubs. Don't get into clubs, because heaven won't have cliques, amen? Heaven won't have the haves and the, the ones that don't have. There won't be any social distancing. You won't have the people that drive Lincolns and the people that drive Four Pintos. Amen? Amen? Amen. We got to get rid of that garbage now. We need to let the grace of God work in us and search us. Are there certain individuals I don't like hanging around with? Are there certain individuals I avoid? Are there certain individuals I speak about when I am with my group and say, those people over, those people over there? Listen, my friends, you are excluding yourself from the fellowship of heaven. Because in that place, all nations, all tribes, all, all kings, all kingdoms will be there praising the same Jesus. Because all of them will attest, he had grace with me. 
And if he loves me, he loves you, and I love you too. Amen? Amen. So we made this appeal in pre previous evenings. The book of Revelations presents the 144,000 as being those that belong to Christ. Those that recognize, um, I'm not that good at living my life. I thought I was. I need a heart change. <coughs> and I can't just simply say, I'll try harder tomorrow, Lord. So you got to put your faith in Christ. And do I pass this card out a few nights ago? I want to pass it out again. Because I told you the night that I shared with you my journey of getting baptized. I was asked twice. The first time, I said not now. But the second time, I knew I need, needed to. And some of you are baptized. I realize that. But if you could just humor this aging preacher... <laughs> And just please fill it out, even if you have been baptized before. Because even if you have been baptized before, maybe tonight, you want to deepen and repeat that commitment to the Lord that you did long ago. Maybe tonight you recognize, it may not be racism, it may be lust. It may not be lust. It might be greed. It might not be greed. It might be anger, resentment, unforgiveness. There's something you are allowing into your life that does not allow you to mature in your spirituality, does not allow you to grow spiritually. It keeps you at times interested, but all too quickly you get bored with Jesus and you get back to the way you used to be. What heaven is inviting you tonight is a transformed life that gradually gets better and better and better. If you have never been baptized, I'm appealing to you tonight, say yes. Doesn't mean that you'll get baptized tomorrow, but it does mean that we will start with Bible studies and answering questions. And putting you on in, in direction so that you can give your life to the Lord publicly, like I did. I never regretted that. So if you have never been baptized, my friends, tonight, I pray that you will make that decision. But if you have been baptized already, there's no box that says that, but you can just put a check mark anywhere in that card that by faith you're letting the Lord know, Father, I've lost my first love and I want it back. I want to be passionate about Jesus. I want to be passionate about your word. I want to be committed, committed in following the Lamb wherever the lamb, the lamb leads. If you could do that, I'm going to pray for you right now. Father, thank you that we are part of that special group, the 144,000. But maybe not all of us tonight are. We have yet to put on Christ. We have yet, Lord, to have our robes washed in his blood. We have yet to have Jesus wash away our sins. 
I'm not sure, Lord, what may have kept some of us from making that decision. I know what kept me. But you kept inviting. And tonight, Lord, you are inviting. And I'm praying that if there's someone that needs to make that decision tonight, by the promptings of your spirit, the attraction of the beautiful cross of Jesus, your son, they will be drawn and empowered to say yes. I've waited too long. I don't want to waste my life in a world that will pass away. I want to give my life to a God that keeps all of his promises. So Father, through the influence of your spirit, if anyone here tonight needs to make that decision, may they do that through this little heart of faith, expression of faith. Look forward, Father, to working with those that say yes. And for those of us that have been baptized, Lord, tonight, may through your spirit, our prayer life experience, Lord, a re-energizing sense of your presence. I may the study of your word deepen like never before. Father, let these blessings rest upon us. And Father, may these blessings come home with us. May they not stay in this place. Thank you for what you have taught us tonight. And thank you for the drawing influence of your spirit. I am confident people are making decisions tonight that will change the rest of their lives. To the praise and honor of your name, in Jesus, we pray. Amen, Father. Amen. God bless you, my friends.